Welcome to The Penny Drops, the Royal London podcast series simplifying finance to help more people, like you, make better informed money decisions. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London. Hello, I'm Andrea Fox, a journalist and broadcaster and the host of The Penny Drops, where I speak to the best financial experts out there. Now, death isn't something we often like to talk about. It can be uncomfortable and upsetting, but it impacts everyone emotionally, practically and financially. And it's something that we should all take time to think about. And for some, this year's coronavirus pandemic may have prompted these thoughts already. Today, we're going to be talking openly about death, how we can feel more comfortable about discussing it, and I've got two very special guests with me. We have TV presenter and published author Jeff Brazier, who you'll know from This Morning, Dancing on Ice, and celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins. Joining him is photographer and filmmaker Rankin, who's photographed some of the most famous faces in the world, from Madonna to the Queen and David Bowie. Jeff and Rankin, thanks so much for joining me today. You both have different experiences with death and bereavement. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about this and how listeners can be more prepared. As always, this podcast is about finances, and I'm sure lots of us have experienced tension or upset around money when someone's died, whether it's disagreements over a will or a funeral being expensive. So let's see if we can help people start thinking about how they can put plans in place that will help make death less difficult for them and their loved ones. So Jeff and Rankin, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, yeah. Jeff is with me in the studio and we are adhering to social distancing rules and Rankin is down the line recording remotely with us, so apologies for any sound issues. Jeff, I wondered if I could start off with you first to understand a little bit about your own experiences. I think most people listening will know about Jay Goody. Um, who's the mother of your two sons, who passed away, sadly, in 2009. But you also lost your father at a very young age, too. So do you think losing such a figure in your life when you were young shaped who you are today? I mean, it undoubtedly did. Um, However, it was quite a a strange situation in that I didn't know that he was mine to lose, if you like, because I I learned about his existence, my biological father, when, uh, well, four years after the actual event, Oh, he he drowned on the Marchioness Bow Bell disaster on the Thames in 1989. And I remember being there the day after because my family all worked on the river. And I remember inquiring, I said, you know, what had happened? Uh, and, and no doubt my auntie would have known my predicament, uh, even though I completely had no idea. And, um, you know, her telling me that a dredger had crashed into a party boat and there were people missing still. So it wasn't until four years later when um, my mum had got out of a particularly difficult relationship. We'd been rehoused in a little village out near Colchester and she basically introduced in a certain way um, the fact that that my stepdad wasn't my real dad, which to a 13 year old, it's kind of a a lot to hold in one uh, conversation, if you like. But the caveat was that I got to meet all of my biological dad's family the day after because that had obviously been something that wasn't able to to, to take part beforehand because of, again, the relationship. And um, so it's it's an interesting one. Can you lose someone that you never knew you had? So I've often described it just simply as there's a there's a void. And uh, whilst there was no there's no memories, there's no experiences shared. Um, there's just sometimes a, a gap that I feel more and more actually as I get older. Yeah, and such a such a strange time to find out when you're a teenager as well. Yeah, there's there's no great time to find out. To be honest, it's it's rubbish at any age, mm. so there's no point even comparing. Yeah, and you you were almost thirty when uh, and a father obviously when Jade died. Her story's been told many times in the press. 
Um, but do you think there were any differences in how you dealt with her death? As you, as you said, it was such a shock to find out about your dad. You did know she was unwell. Did that help you anyway to prepare? It's interesting because you can speak to someone who has had a multiple uh, multiple experiences of loss and there's still no preparation for it because each experience is truly unique in its own nature in that your relationship with that individual was unique to maybe your relationship that you had with anybody else. It's always going to hurt because this is someone that has always been there or someone that you deeply care about. But each each one being completely unique, this put me in a situation where I was having to take responsibility for, you know, solve responsibility for, for two human lives. And, you know, it was daunting. Um, I attacked it with my usual optimism and, um, and positivity, uh, which gets you so far, I think. But now they're 16 and 17 and, and I can truly say it's gone really well. But there have been thousands and, and, you know, literally so many mistakes that I've made. You can never navigate it perfectly. Uh, but the truth is you don't have to. It, love is enough is what I'd say to people and, and you do find a way. And there's no need to put as much pressure on ourselves as we do sometimes. Maybe that was me. Maybe that was what a dad would do is think, right, I've got to be all things to these children. And that is just absolutely impossible. Yeah. Uh, but whatever I was and whatever I wasn't was enough. And to a point, they kind of take the development. They take the reins anyway. They handle their, they learn to navigate their grief by themselves. Uh, although obviously there's an overlap and we, we have discussions and we still visit a special place and, and things that we should always do as a family. But they kind of learn to take care of their own emotions and that's exactly how it should be, whether there was a loss or, or not. That's that's part of becoming independent. Hmm, yeah, love is enough is a lovely, lovely message as well. Um, Rankin, you lost your parents very close together, didn't you? How did you feel and how do you think your work was impacted by, by this? I think that I was prepared for my parents passing away because they were a lot older than Jade was. So, you know, they talked about it a lot and they told us, they were very stoic about it and they were very kind of ready for death. Um, but what was really strange for me is that kind of stoicism and the way that they approached it did really help at the time, but it, it meant that we hadn't really talked about it properly. So what I found was that after death, I kind of reassessed it very, very quickly. And the more was reassessing it, the more I was thinking, I really should have taken some advice on this. I should have really thought about this um, because they they were like, we're going to die. It's okay. We don't believe in God. We don't believe in an afterlife. They kind of made it easy for myself and my sister. Um, and I was a workaholic. So I was like mm. obsessed by just work, work, work. And I threw myself into that. And there were a couple of moments um one when I was on holiday with my wife where I had a dream about my dad and mm. I just li literally broke down and um and then another one was when my dog passed away and my dog dying allowed me to really really get upset like really seriously get upset which mm. I'd never done before so that kind of created this interest in why we why we don't really prepare ourselves why we don't really talk about it why it's a taboo subject and i ended up making this documentary about it which which was 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 really also about photography about how photographs are such great ways of remembering life and celebrating life so it wasn't till sort of three or four years afterwards that i really got my head around it and then i started to think about death 
And I got really scared because it's almost like inviting it into your life instead of it crashing into your life. Whereas I was going, okay, come in, let's talk about it for the first time. Let's think about it. So I started reading about it a lot and really considering it. And it just made me realize that we do not prepare ourselves for it under normal circumstances. And we, we, we kind of do it behind closed doors. You know, somebody dies and the, the body goes and we don't actually say goodbye properly. That's why I did the documentary. And doing the documentary really made me uh, capable of actually talking about it. So now I can talk about it easily. And if somebody's got a terminal illness or, you know, they they, they feel that they're, they're, they're not going to last very long, I can talk about it so easily now. Yeah. For people who don't know, the documentary is called Alive in the Face of Death. It is amazing. Um, and it's interesting that though, would you say those are your main takeaways from the documentary and the people that you met who'd received that diagnosis and were facing death, that, that you it made it somehow easier for you to sort of talk about that? Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think it's it could you could see it as rose tinted because I think the people that we filmed and I photographed were very ready to talk about it. Whereas I don't think everybody is. And I think what Jeff said at the beginning, no one way of doing this is the right way. In fact, there's no right way. The way that you find it and the way that you deal with it is the right way. But um, yeah, I mean, the takeaway for me was that everybody everybody experiences it in a different way. You start thinking about the, the little things and you start thinking about relationships and, uh, you know, how much you love someone, telling them, you know, having those conversations with them become really important and the documentary gave those all those subjects a chance to do that and to talk to me about it and it and it just made me realize don't uh don't worry about the small things you know worry about the bigger things yeah they're the most important things to think about yeah i mean and there's so many people from different backgrounds who have different perspectives who are in the documentary i think is it diane antill who was uh in later life very chirpily saying well your death you'd think about it so much but really it's the people who are left behind who are going to be most affected by your death and i was like oh that was such a such a perspective i hadn't considered yeah, she she wrote a lot about death, and she was quite old when I when I photographed her and we filmed her. But she really made me realise that I didn't have to be scared of it. That was the the big thing for me and the director Jack. We were just scared. We were literally scared. We were like, "Why are we doing this? This is we kind of signed up for it." And then halfway f- through the research, we were like, "This is nuts. Why are we talking about this stuff? Because it really is quite depressing initially when you start to." to Mm. talk about it but then you meet someone like her and she's had an amazing life and she literally kind of it was almost like a slap in the face it's like what what are you doing why are you getting so negative about it it's like celebrate the life not the death and um it did really turn it around for me and and i think because we did the research we saw how many how many different cultures deal with it in different ways Mm. and how you know the celebration of life and actually the celebration of 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 passing is such a big thing in lots of different cultures and actually was a big thing in our culture until you know probably about 100 years ago everybody Mm -hmm. does deal with it differently and the the worst thing you can do is what i did i think um and not have that conversation you know it's really important you have those conversations you you, you know, it's important for the person that's not um, going to be here for very long and it's important for the person that's going to be left behind. Yeah. So, Jeff, at the time that Jade died, there was something called the Jade Effect, where there was a surge in women going for cervical screening. The cancer rates actually went down, which is something in loss. It's kind of a lovely thing to have as a positive legacy for her. 
that is now fading and it's also been in the news that people are scared of visiting hospitals at the moment. It is obviously important that we go for appointments and checkups that we're offered so that any problems can be found early on. And for people who have a diagnosis, how important is it from your experience as a bereavement counsellor that we talk to our family and friends about it? Exactly what Rankin was uh, alluding to, but death can be a magnificent perspective. And I think the, uh, you know, the jade effect that you was talking about is, you know, a warning to people that they can see in front of them. It's uh, someone that they know very well, you know, is obviously all over the media. And so for a period of time, it meant that people could really picture themselves being in her shoes. And as a result, were taking the, the, the correct responsible steps in order to ensure that they didn't. Of course, that was always going to taper off because we revert to type. We're creatures of habit. And we just go back to doing, again, what, what Rankin said, that, that he had done which is to to maybe not have the conversation and just not think about it because if we think about it it's a bit painful it's a bit undesirable a bit unattractive a mm-hmm. uh, bit deep bit heavy sadly it's you know the minute you're born you you're gonna die effectively it's like the sun rise and the sunset they go perfectly hand in hand so I, I do feel the more I've exposed myself to the subject um, on writing the book, on, um, you know, obviously dealing with bereaved clients, which gives you a wonderful perspective, not just on on the subject itself. You're never an expert, by the way, but it just means that you see the similarities from one person. So then you see the patterns. Mm. You, you understand why people fare better after a loss if they have more of an open and courageous outlook on the conversation at large and um, with regards to where this change a hundred years ago happened uh, it, you know it's for me you, you look at the first world war the second world war and the fact that people didn't have time to um, grieve in the moment or allow those the, the impacts of loss to necessarily um, feel their their thoughts because they were busy with the war effort mm. and it was almost you know maybe frowned upon for people to be so self-indulgent that they would uh, focus on their feelings when other lives were were at stake, and I wonder whether it turned then. I wonder whether yeah. that was uh, what sent it in a in a different direction. Is that what you think, Rankin? Was that was it sort of the war? Because I immediately went to a Victorian stiff upper lip that stopped us from talking about it. So I think that what happened was society started to start protecting itself against death. So whether that was the medical profession taking bodies away or as an ambulance or whatever whatever it was, those closed doors. Normally, you know, you go to hospital, your partner dies or your grandparent or your father dies. And that, like with my father, he died. I was holding his hand. Mm. Um, my mum said goodbye to him. And then she saw him for a few seconds and he was gone. And yes, of course, you can ask to see the body. But... Most people don't, and most mm. people are scared of it. And whereas before that happened, people would have to deal with the body being in their house a lot of the time. And actually, that it's a strange thing, but, but what, what I've learned from it, and again, everybody's different, and I think that's really important to say, everybody is different, but saying goodbye to the body is so important, and understanding that the person's not there anymore. And... To me, that was the thing that I felt like I didn't do. And then what you realise is that actually the whole of our society is all about kind of not talking about it and not planning for it properly. And and I think that, that that's the bit that I get kind of, I get the most kind of upset about that I didn't do that. And 
and that I didn't have those conversations and I didn't end up saying goodbye properly and, and I, I regret all of those things. So when I talk about it, I'm not saying that people should do, do those things, but what I'm saying from my perspective that I really, 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 really wish I had. Yeah. And I guess as it comes up in the documentary, as, as you've mentioned, like death is a natural part of life, isn't it? So I wondered whether both of you had any kind of... You obviously think we should be talking about death more, is that right? Absolutely, we should be talking more about death. We should have a, a, a much more of an open dialogue uh, with our family members. Um, you know, I obviously have with my children because they've experienced it all too soon. But mm. it's interesting hearing Rankin talking about seeing the body and, and I completely get that. I'd never even considered it, to be honest. But of course it's important. And yes, modern society does deflect us from having to go through anything uncomfortable but to our detriment yeah. um, mm. and that's a, a really good example of it we should spend time with the body afterwards so that really what we need is for the reality to um, even as ugly as that reality is mm. um, and painful and difficult and distressing um, if you're protecting yourself via you know some form of denial um, then actually that doesn't benefit anybody in the in the long run it just you know a, a lot of people do it when um you know they'll, they'll lose someone and they have to organize a funeral mm. and and generally um it's it's quite widely accepted that, that as soon as the funeral is done that's when it's almost like you allow it to to resonate you know what actually is the reality and what has just happened to you who have you lost what does it mean to you how do you feel mm. And a lot of people say, you know, it's time to move on and it's actually not time to move on. You know, it's time to really actually consider what's, what's happened to you and how you feel about that. And I think that I've, I found it the most difficult thing was that hitting me a few years later and going, I can't believe I've just done that, you know, to myself and, and, and to my parents. You know, not having those conversations that really were important and they didn't seem to want to have but I should have made them have them I should have made them Jeff you've written a book as you mentioned um, and offer coaching on grief have you found any like common feelings and experiences that people share that like could be reduced or alleviated if we plan better when it comes to death was there like because you mentioned there's like patterns in grief and things that you've discovered is it ever a good thing to do like Rankin was just talking about yes a very good question and you can imagine that someone who is not willing to have the conversation will fare worse when and as that that day actually comes and no one's going to do no one's going to be like fine and I think we hmm, it's hard to prepare yourself for loss ultimately mm. um, so there's the natural measure of loss and then there is uh, what we add to it and that's always the really interesting thing for me to learn whenever I sit down with anybody and I guess I'm personally thinking okay obviously grief is going to be really difficult for you and that's why you're here however uh, what I'm really interested in the, the quick gains if you like the, the, the quick lessons that we can really uh, shift perspective with are usually when uh, we learn well you know how is this combining with something that you learn about yourself or you learn about life way before the death even happened because we are almost pre-programmed to to experience uh, loss in a in a certain way some people are particularly unkind to themselves after a loss you could say that you know to deny yourself the the reality which is going to help you get on that path towards 
uh, some form of acceptance um, sooner rather than, you know, if you, you know, I've spoke to some people that distracted themselves for at least a decade. And then when they sold their business that kept them, you know, eternally busy, mm. uh, then all of a sudden loss of their parent absolutely smashed them in the face. We can try and outrun grief for, for as long as we like. It will generally always be there to tap you on the shoulder the minute you slow up. So it's something that we should be making friends with. It's something that we should uh, realise is actually something that serves us. Yeah. Do you agree with that ranking? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even more so, like, make yourself write those memories down, make yourself look mm. at those pictures, make yourself kind of contain those so you've got them. Because, I, I mean, this idea of getting over it is bizarre. Mm. And I don't know where it comes from, but it's absolutely the worst thing you can do. And... I think good good grief is the most important thing to look for uh, within this because good grief means that you accept it, you understand it, you you almost open your arms to it, and 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 then what happens is later on you can really sort of delve into those memories and moments and the favourite songs and the you know the things that just keep that person alive in your in your memory or in in your heart because mm. that really is what love is and 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 i'm really you know for me like going forward like that's so important with people yeah and it's hard like you said jeff you everyone deals with things differently so how do you how do you how do you pressurize that conversation no amount of conversation and openness that's going to mean that someone is not going to be in absolute tatters when um when someone very close to them but in terms of I tell you what exactly what it is. It's the opportunity to cross the T's and dot the I's. It's the opportunity to have the conversations um, to ensure that that person knew that you yeah. were absolutely loved by them and um, mm. why you were so special. Mm. Um, it's do you know it's the alleviation of the possibility of of, of guilt and blame, mm. which is one of these unnatural uh, elements to somebody's grief that could have been avoided mm. a lot of people can look at themselves and say i didn't say goodbye mm. i mm. should have done i somehow should yeah. have preempted this accident that happened mm. and yeah. um you know i should have give them the biggest cuddle even though we've had we'd yeah. had an argument I, the, the amount of times i've heard that the last things that someone said to their partner was an argument yeah, it's almost having that kind of bird's eye view of it, isn't it? And saying, having those, making yourself have those conversations. Because yeah, I totally agree with you that it doesn't mean you're not going to grieve, but it might just help make it a little bit easier to know what's going on. But yeah, that's why I think the more people talk about it, the more we can make it easy for other people to talk about it, and the more we do things like this. I mean, I personally love these types of conversations because I feel like it actually I learn more about it every time I speak about it and mm. and it is it's such a strange subject matter because it really does throw you even talking about it now you get a bit thrown like mm. oh, like how how do I have that conversation what what should I do and it's so personal that's the other thing and personally I think when people when people are very close to each other sometimes those conversations are the hardest conversations to have Mm. Because people, you know, it, it's this idea of um, it bringing, making it happen almost like, you know, you're tempting fate type thing. Mm. And um, even though that seems really st- stupid, it's like I do really, I remember when I started the documentary, I felt like I was tempting fate. On doing my will, I remembered a sense of relief. 
I remember the sense of responsibility having been taken. I remember feeling I have looked after my family by doing that, not just in what I'm leaving, but in that I've actually done it and I know that I'm saving them the potential unravelling of of any assets that that I may leave uh, when I'm not here by by taking that very um, you know some would say brave like a brave step in dealing with something that's taboo dealing with something that we don't want to invite forwards but the truth is is that if you've done it you will experience a sense of relief and I wonder whether that sense of relief then makes you feel like you can live your life to the fullest to an extent mm. because it's one less thing to worry about. I think to leave all of your affairs in order is an, is an act of love in itself. I agree. I wonder whether that discussion of things like wills, like what do you want played at your funeral, you know, that funeral planning is sort of a way to get people to talk about it because, Jeff, did, did Jade leave any plans for her funeral? Did you know what she wanted? Mm. Um, no. No, uh, she had a, a a lot of people around her that that, that maybe did, um, that, that that maybe were informed. Um, I wasn't at the funeral. Um, I took the boys to Australia, which was strangely a very knee jerk thing to do. Uh, and I look back and think, why did I plonk myself on the other side of the world? Well, I guess I wanted to get as far away. I wanted to take the children as far away from what had become a bit of a melee, to be honest. Um, and it was literally all about them and giving them some some uh, some peace and some time, some space mm-hmm. to, to obviously evaluate what had just happened, even though actually looking back, it took them a good six months really for, for the penny to drop, if you like, um, mm-hmm. because naturally we protect ourselves from anything undesirable. Uh, mm. Such as such as the loss of your mum, but um, but yeah, it's really natural for us to to want to avoid the conversation. But if people knew how much they would literally be stitching their family members up um, by not doing so, then I think they'd take a very different course of action. But you know, a, a nicer way of going around the uh, the funeral uh, conversation is to is to maybe just bring up like I love this song. You know, absolutely yeah. need this played at my funeral, and I think. Mm. You know, for partners, family members, they they might look at that and be like, "All right, okay, fair enough." Um, But they'll remember it, Mm. and um, you know, not just that, but you can go into a lot of detail. And uh, here's another thing: like, if if you don't leave any kind of direction as to what you want uh, to happen to you um, when you're not here anymore, well, I think your family have then got to make those decisions. And again, it's just more fodder for um, for for contention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, don't get me wrong, you, you might look at your family and think, no, nah, they get on, they, everyone gets on absolutely amazing. But why take the Throw risk? Throw money into the mix and what? you never know, yeah. I suppose, right? Look, it's a legal yeah. document. Even mm. that, just, just leave a letter to someone, mm. you know, that someone can find one day and be like, right, in this event, um, okay, I, I want to be uh, cremated and um, I want my uh, ashes to be scattered on this golf course because I'm obsessed with it, um, <laughs> you know, and a little bit at, at Tottenham's ground and, you know, whatever. And it, that conversation, it can be, it can actually, it doesn't have to be a painful conversation to have when people perceive that that day is a long way off. Yeah, 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 it lightens it. Rankin, did, did your parents leave any sort of demands for their funeral? Did you know what they wanted? No, no, they definitely left wills and, and, and those were very accurate. And I think actually kind of they felt that they were best placed to kind of not have the chat because of that. Mm. But then we, we were scrabbling around trying to work out what to do. And my sister and I luckily 
didn't have too much debate over it. But I think if you don't leave those wishes and you don't have those conversations, the arguments, not even just on financial, and financial is massive for that. It's like one of the biggest arguments you can have. Mm. But even just on the really basic thing, like, you know, what, what what song would it be or how would you know what the flowers are? You know, like it's so big a thing. And, if, and I've watched people have completely different perspectives because those things haven't been discussed. And then that becomes an argument. Mm. You know, mum or dad would have liked this. You know, mum or dad would have liked that. And it's like like the last thing you need to be doing because what you need to be doing, even though it can be distracting, is is getting into the beginning to grieve and understand it. And the organisation can be very good at just sort of helping you. But there is that point where you are going to be thinking... (laughs) Okay, I need to start really thinking about this now, and that took me ages to do. Yeah, and I'm I'm sitting here in the studio with the stats in front of me. I think the average funeral costs these days are four thousand pounds, and because of the pandemic, lots of people have experienced that financial shock of losing someone and yeah. then having to pay for a funeral which they weren't necessarily expecting. As we're recording today, there's still restrictions in place when it comes to funerals. So it's like you've both been saying it's. It's like the top-up you were mentioning, Jeff, like grief is this thing. And if you're adding all these financial worries and all these things about not knowing exactly what they wanted on top of that, not having a will, it just sort of compounds that for people, doesn't it? I understand why people don't want to think about a time when they're not here. Mm. Uh, But if for one second we could take a break from that and just imagine that we're not. And, um, you know, we love our family and our friends. And what experience... Do we want them to have in in loss the early stages of their grief? Do we want it to be full of contention and issues um, either amongst each other or amongst others? Or do we want to be able to give them the, the, the benefit, the privilege, if you like, of being able to focus solely on themselves, their emotions, um, each other, supporting each other and, you know, just coping with how horrendous you not being there is in the first place. So in order to actually ensure that that it's the latter as opposed to the former um all we have to do is actually just be like right okay i there's a few things i could do whether it is you know getting a funeral plan whether it is actually uh taking care of that financially just leaving some context you know because i think the will is just one thing but i'd always say let's let's sort of write some letters to people just explaining you don't owe anyone an explanation for why you're leaving them more than than the next person or so and so forth that's your discretion do you know what it just means that nobody needs to assume and also nobody can make anything up and i think that's a a lovely responsible thing for us to do and it takes not very long and actually you know you might even enjoy the process if you do it ahead of a time when you absolutely need to because there's health issues or something else that you're concerned about yeah completely and I know Rankin you said that you and your sister get on really well and there weren't really any arguments and things but that is definitely one of those things isn't it money and finances they become really difficult to navigate when you've lost someone right absolutely and I I felt very lucky that we didn't have those fights, but I've watched mm. other people have them, and mm. it can tear a family apart, you know, literally, very, very easily, because these things become so personal, and so it's not even about kind of greed or wanting something, it's just about, like, I think this and I think that, and it's very divisive, and wise words indeed, you know, like, um, to, to, to have these conversations, and they don't have to be terrible they don't have to be difficult they, I mean, they're always going to be a little bit difficult but they can be sort of celebratory and I think one of the best things that pe- one of the best pieces of advice I could give someone is do 
write your words down to the person you're le- a few of the people you're leaving because that gives them something to have in the future to go back to to be able to you know remember and um have those those letters or whatever you know whether it's a voice note or whatever it is you know i remember when my parents passed away i was kept listening to the answer phone message you know mm. like my dad saying just to hear his voice really you know and um i think those things are they're so useful for for the person that you're leaving and 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 also i think for you if you if you if you are a terminal you feel that you've not got long to go the, the the ability to be able to say how you feel really you know i can't imagine anything more important than being able to put that down in some way so i really i really believe in that stuff i think if you also been really brave about confronting um your own mortality and uh, thinking ahead then then actually I'd, I'd want to introduce the the notion of uh, triggers and anchors and, and when people are grieving they sometimes ascribe out um grief absolutely dictates itself to them that's more of the common um experience in that you don't know when the emotion is going to hit you but it does and it will when it's um you know a great metaphor is is waves but also there's the um, there's the time when those that are, I think, coping with grief in the most constructive of ways will realise that they can dictate themselves to grief in that they can mm. invite it in. And a way of doing that is to have a box of triggers, anchors, if you like, that you know as soon as you go into that box, you're going to be emotional, you're going to mm. feel close to that individual, you're inviting grief to come on. And people are thinking, well, why on earth would you want to do that? The, the logic is this, is that it's not just logic, it, it just it, it works for, for many, it might not work for you, but um, is that when you go into that box and you pick up that jumper that smells of them and you pick up that fragrance, you pick up that photo, you know, there's obviously lots of different triggers in, in various many forms that you can leave. Um, but, you know, by inviting um, the emotion, it's, it's quite an empowering thing to do for starters. Um, but, you know, people always worry, like, if I start crying directly after the loss of an individual that I love, um, you know, will I ever stop? And the, the truth is that, that yes, but because you've you've welcomed grief in, then you the emotion obviously comes and at a point, whether it's after five minutes or an hour or whenever, it'll go and you'll realise that, that it doesn't come back maybe for a day or two days. It depends really what stage you're at. Um and you know, if you've if you've got a, something that you really like to keep yourself together for, I mean, it's always really difficult to ensure. But if you're dictating yourself to grief, you can almost preempt the emotion, kind of get it out. Because I I always describe grief as uh, as being like uh, air in a or gas in a in a cylinder, if you like. Us being the cylinder. If we're uh, avoiding the discussion, then you can imagine this cylinder is just getting more and more close to the top. Mm. And inevitably, when it gets and reaches to that point, it will have to find its own way out. Yeah. Grief works exactly like that. If we're preempting that and just letting a little bit out every now and again by going into this this box full of memories, it's a way of us regulating and managing our own sense of our own levels, if you like, of of, of emotional buildup. Yeah, the power of having a good cry, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I embrace it now. Me you too. know. We absolutely love a good cry. Um, and, yeah, there, there are ways that I can induce that. Yeah. And you think, I'll never stop crying, and then you just get exhausted and you do, and you're like, oh, I did. I did stop. I and did stop what? in the end. You feel better. Yeah. Mm. You definitely feel better. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jeff, as well, sticking with the money stuff, I mean, are, 
you became the sole provider for your children after Jay died. So was that quite difficult? Was that another stress, the budgeting and the finance element of, of all of that? Well, I, I had a job and I continue to maybe work a little bit harder and I had to gravitate towards certain like for example I worked on this morning for 10 years and it wasn't because I I necessarily loved daytime TV from start to finish um, and it was not necessarily always in line with with you know my ambitions or anything like that but I figured that the most important thing was to be able to earn uh, you know a, a, a reasonable amount that was gonna you know help me clothe and feed my children mm. but to do that in as few hours as possible so so my work um, revolved around that uh, to a large extent. And it's interesting because I got back into football. I worked for BT and Talk Sport, and football was one of my, you know, first loves and is a big passion still. And when I realised the boys were of an age where they didn't need me so much of a weekend, it, it, it meant that right, I've got licence to go back into football because I can disappear on a Saturday. They don't want me on a Saturday anyway. They're off doing things with their friends, of course. But now that they're 16 and 17 and I realise that Bobby's, you know, probably a few months away from driving. And wow. uh, again, it's this really interesting feeling of, of starting life all over again. I wouldn't ever describe it as having been restricted or limited because I'd never, you know, I've truly embraced the opportunity to test myself as a human being in what I'm capable of, not just as a dad, but as a person, as a mentor to these two kids. And as I say, like I alluded to having made so, so many mistakes, but it's, it's something to be proud of. And I, you know, any dad would probably say the same is that you're not half the person uh, that you become when you when you sort of find yourself into fatherhood. But obviously, I've done it. I've done it the hard way. I think. Um, I, I don't think anyone would would necessarily dispute that. So it's it, it's exciting. I can pat myself on the back. I never used to. I I hadn't done until I got married two years ago, and um, I saw the boys speak at our wedding in their speeches and you know that's when it really hit me that you know it's gone quite well because of the way they spoke so confidently intelligently um with with real humor as well and held an audience it was just like incredible to to watch so it has been quite a journey I wondered um, whether either of you, because of your experiences, obviously, with death and with grief, has it made you think differently about how you live your life? Do you have a bucket list now? Do you think it's changed? Do you feel like you live life to the fullest? Is, is, would you say that's true at all, Jeff? Yeah, I, I, for, for having, and Rankin might uh, say the same in, in, in because of his recent experiences um, of, of loss, but also in the documentary that he's just done. Mm. Um, but when I wrote the book and when I immersed myself in the subject of grief, it, it really um, made it less uh, scary. Mm. Uh, I'd say that I'm less scared of death than I am of not living life. I am one who hates wasting time. Straight hate's a very strong word, but I, I really hate wasting time. I like to be busy, productive. I like to, to get as many experiences, most notably under my belt, because I use a, a technique with my clients called the rocking chair, and it's just simply to deliver perspective. I, I make them close their eyes and imagine themselves in a rocking chair, and I say, you're at that age where you've told yourself that's you know what you're going to get to when you're there and thereabouts. Now I want you to whatever the problem was that we've been discussing uh, within that session, I'll, I'll, I'll help them see what, what they would feel like 
if they'd reached that point, having not changed anything at all. And obviously that's the undesirable state that um, usually sort of really disgusts them, makes them feel like, oh my God, I've really got to change something. So it's really powerful mm-hmm. and effective. And then we we uh, we just change state and go go to the positive equivalent where you were at that point, you've had a full and enjoyable life with all those life experiences and you change that thing that you knew was something that you wanted to, to get to grips with and, and as a result, your your life was what? And then they describe the differences and you see them come alive and you see them glowing with optimism and mm-hmm. hope and joy and um, it's quite a, quite a powerful thing, that perspective, but what I wouldn't want people is to, is to get to the, actually get to that point in their life where they're in that rocking chair and be full of regret. So I do everything I can to ensure that that won't be me. Amazing. Rankin, would you agree with that? Has death given you a different perspective on life? Definitely, and I think having a bucket list of achievements is still important to me, but the main thing I think is that making sure I spend time with those that I love and having that and being it being very kind of specific to them and trying really hard not to let work overwhelm me because it always has and it still does to quite a large extent. But I guess it's that having the overview and the rocking chair is a really great concept. My thing definitely is about kind of being a better person and achieving things that are emotionally very important to me as well as kind of like fiscally or or, um, creatively very important. So I think I've learned how to try and balance a bit more. Yeah. And you've both talked about, you know, having the chats with the accountants, doing your Mm. will. You both got your finances sorted. It's definitely something that that you would both urge anyone listening right now to do, right? Yeah, the boys get a tenner each. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Um, For anyone listening, we have covered planning for death in more detail back in the February episode of this podcast. So if you haven't already, go and download that. Our guest was Guy Kilty from BBC Radio 5 Live, full of loads of really useful tips on everything you need to know with wills, funerals, planning for your estate and everything you need to know about financially planning for death. You've both sort of said you've done all of that yourselves. Is there anything weird in the funeral plans there? Do you want everyone to wear pink or anything like that? I did shipwrecked in 2001, I think it was, and um, it's uh, it's a little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It really was the most beautiful place. It's now become a five-star resort, which I I actually really can't afford. Like, I want to go there for my 50th, and I I started saving up about five years ago. Um, But I've I've actually tasked the boys with taking my ashes, or at least part of, um, to that island. Because uh, it's wow. so special to me now, you know, I've not even been back there and enjoyed the the tourist experience. But, um, but, but yeah, that's that's what I've tasked them with doing. That's amazing. Much better than a golf course, I have to say. <laughs> Rankin, anything on your funeral no. plan list that's a bit a bit kooky? It's very dull, I'm afraid. Now we're always at the end um, of our time today. Um, it's been lovely talking to both of you. I've I've thought about death in ways I did not think I was going to when I walked into this studio today but for people listening if there's just top takeaways that you really want them to take hold of everything that you've spoken today what would they be Jeff can I go to you first yeah easy I always uh, revert to this one because it's the biggest misconception following a loss of a loved one and that is that strength is not being stoic and having a stiff upper lip and not talking about and holding your emotions at bay because you think that if you crumble, everybody else will. Mm. That's a horrible pressure to put on yourself. Um, Strength in loss is actually sharing your vulnerability 
and your emotional state and being honest with everyone so that you give everybody else permission to share their emotions too. Yeah. Rankin, what would what would you add to that? Try and try and have a conversation. That's that's the best thing I could advise people. That, that that's what I didn't do and I regret not having done that. And if you have to be sneaky about having the conversation or if you have to be duplicitous about having the conversation, whatever whatever you can do, if you have that opportunity, make sure you have that conversation and continue to try having it as much as you can. Yeah, sometimes those drives where you're not looking someone in the eye, that's 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 a way to have an awkward conversation, I always feel yeah, as well. Um, right, finally then, thank you so much for joining me. We always ask guests on the Penny Drops, uh, this isn't like a your average episode, typical episode for us, but we always do ask our guests, um, if you could give your 18-year-old self any advice, what would it be? It doesn't have to be financial. <laughs> I definitely would have learnt to drive rather than going on that 1830s cos holiday, as much fun as it was. Um, so yeah, any advice for your eighteen-year-old selves, fellas? Oh, um, so at, at that time I was still um, having a good go at being a professional footballer. But uh, the minute I got released, as is typical with most young uh, young players, they take that as the whole industry telling them that they're not good enough. Um, and I would have told myself, "You are good enough," and that's just mm-hmm. one opinion out of ninety-two, if not more, football managers. So go and have another go elsewhere. Go and trial. You're good enough. You'll you'll be fine. Oh, that's a lovely one, Rankin. I think probably I was somebody that was quite insecure about about what I was doing, and um, so I, I I kind of instead of sort of leaning into that insecurity and trying to work out what why I was insecure. I tended to show off and be quite arrogant, and I think that I wasn't really that person. And you know, the people that you're around normally when you're 18 to 24, you're around with the rest of your life, especially in the business that I'm in. All the people that I knew back then, I know now, and I just came off a bit as a bit of a an arrogant little so and so. Yeah, and I think that learning that that's not actually showing off and being arrogant isn't really how you get what you want from life nice so I'd go back and tell him to just turn the volume down on arrogance <laughs> the two lovely notes I think to end on uh, Rankin Jeff Brazier thank you so much for joining me on the Penny Drops thanks for having me thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the Penny Drops we hope you learned something new and useful to help you with your finances We'd love to hear what you think of the series, so please do leave us a review. Or if you have any comments or money questions you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch at thepennydrops at royallondon.com. This podcast series is brought to you by Royal London, the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company. Royal London recommends you seek professional independent financial advice before making financial decisions. All views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and not of Royal London. Royal London.